Holy Father, we want to sing that in our souls even as the choir has sung it for us. Glory to You in the highest. I cannot imagine what it will be like when, as Holy Scripture says, from one Sabbath to the next, in the earth made new, we shall gather at Your feet. And with the thousands times ten ten thousands and thousands of thousands, we lift up our voices together. What, What a moment that will be. We sing by faith. Glory to You. We wait by faith on You now that Holy Scripture might not only engage our minds, but that it might address our hearts, that we might know how to follow Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. The case of Dr. Eck. I wish we could put the face of Dr. Eck on the screen for you today. I know of at least three sketches and paintings of him, and they're all contrary to each other, so they're no help at all. Fortunately, however, we have an eyewitness we have an eyewitness description of Dr. Eck on that June 27 day, 1519, at the University of Leipzig. Actually, not, not only an eyewitness uh, description of Dr. Eck, he also, this eyewitness, describes the protagonist in that 18-day debate, a fellow German, Martin Luther, and his sidekick, Andreas Karlstadt. So here's, as I was reading this uh, eyewitness description of these three uh, uh, main players in that uh, memorable debate, I kept thinking, who am I thinking of when this uh, description is applied to our congregation here? You may think of somebody that uh, would fit these three descriptions. Now, the eyewitness starts off with uh, Luther, Martin. He goes, Martin is of middle height. 500 years ago, people were shorter, obviously, than they are today. So, if this is a kind of average, then middle would be right here. Obviously, not a very tall man. Martin is of middle height, emaciated from care and study, so that you can almost count his bones through his skin. See anybody around you like that? Almost count his bones through his skin. He's in the vigor of manhood and has a clear, penetrating voice. He is affable and friendly and in no sense dour or arrogant. That kind of sounds like a friendly person to get to know. So that's Martin. That's Martin Luther. Now here's his sidekick, Andreas Karlstadt. Karlstadt is smaller than Luther with a complexion of smoked herring. You know, I'm not sure. Is that a compliment, smoked herring? Huh? Anybody here you see? No. Smoked herring, mercy. Karlstadt is smaller than Luther with a complexion of smoked herring. His voice is thick and unpleasant. He's... He is slower of memory and quicker in anger. All right, so that's two of the three. Now, Dr. Eck. Here we go. Eck. Eck is a heavy, square-set fellow with a full German voice supported by a hefty chest. You can picture, can't you? He would make a tragedian. That would be, that, that is an actor in a Greek tragedy. So that's a, the guy, no PAs back then, so he's bellowing the lines out from the stage. He would make a tragedian or a town crier, but his voice is rather rough than clear. So it's kind of a gravelly, you know, gravelly kind of voice. His eyes and mouth and his whole face remind one more of a butcher than a theologian. 
and you're already picturing somebody. But don't let, uh, don't let the robust physique of Dr. Eck fool you. One biographer uh, described him this way, Despite his butcher's face and bull's voice, he was a man of prodigious memory, torrential fluency, and uncanny acumen, a professional disputant or debater. This is a guy that loves to get that microphone and plunge into a debate. Enter now the famed debate between Dr. Eck and Martin Luther the summer of 1519 at the University of Leipzig. Now, you remember two years earlier, October 31, 1517, that young German monk in his early, early to mid-30s unwittingly, you remember, ignited the mighty Protestant Reformation when he nailed up on the University Cathedral's uh, wooden doors. He nailed up his 95 challenges to Rome's sale of indulgences. Now, indulgences back then were, if you paid a little money, you could shorten your time in purgatory, you could shorten your mother's time or your father's time or some loved one, all right? So when Eck, Johannes Eck, when he finally gets a hold of these 95 theses, these 95 challenges, he is a loyal son of the church and he is a debater to the core and he said, bring on that fellow German monk. And Luther agrees. Actually, Eck went for Karlstadt first, but he said his eye was on Luther. Luther agreed, and the University of Leipzig also agreed that they would host the debate. So, everything is set now for this brilliant piece of logic that Eck has reserved for unsuspecting Luther. Luther has no idea this is going to come. And Luther, though a faithful Roman Catholic himself, a Roman Catholic pastor and professor, he has more and more of late been taking an anti-Rome stance in his teaching and preaching. And now, seven days into the, the debate, can you imagine going for 18 days? One week into the debate, Luther finally challenges, he says, look, he challenges the, the, the Pope's divine right to primacy. And he says, look, whether you got one Pope or ten Pope or a thousand Popes, it doesn't matter. We still got unity in the church. To which Eck fires back. I marvel that the Reverend Father should forget the everlasting dissension of the English and the French. What do you mean we got unity in the church? You got the French and the English? The inveterate hatred of the French for the Spaniards? As for me, I confess one faith, one Lord Jesus Christ, and I venerate the Roman pontiff as Christ's vicar. In fact, Eck went on to hone his argument for the kill. He said, you know what, Martin? You obviously are a disciple of the Bohemian John Huss. And if you defend his writings, then you are heretical, erroneous, blasphemous, presumptuous, seditious, and offensive to pious ears, respectively. Tell us how you really feel, Dr. Eck. To which Luther fires back, cries out word. Now, here are the words. Here we go. Here's where we're going for this line. He's throwing down the gauntlet now. Luther cries out, let me talk in German. Apparently, they're debating in Latin. He said, let me, let me, because there's this gallery. Let me speak the language of the people. I am being misunderstood by the people. I assert, Luther declared, that a church council has sometimes erred and may sometimes err. A council cannot make divine right out of that which by nature is not divine right. Councils have contradicted each other. A simple layman, here he goes, a simple layman armed with Scripture is to be, be believed above a pope or a council without it. And as for the pope's decretal on indulgences, I say that neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from Scripture. And now here's his thrust. For the sake of Scripture, we should reject pope and councils 
End quote. And there it was. Luther's ringing challenge to the Church of Rome. All truth, all truth must come sola scriptura. Holy Scriptures only. For the, how, did, how did he put it here? For the sake of Scripture, we should reject Pope and councils. And so it was, ladies and gentlemen, that sola scriptura became the battle cry of the mighty Protestant Reformation. And it becomes the first line, by the way, that we want to scribble down in our study guide this morning. And so would you take your study guide out in your worship bulletin? Pull it out. First line. Get it down. If you didn't get a study guide, ushers, thank you right now. Hold your hands up. There are some quotations here that you want to you make sure to add to your, your collection. So make sure you get the study guide all the way up in the balcony. Those of you in the um, orchestra and the choir, we put study guides on your chairs. Grab that study guide right now. And while the ushers are getting the study guides out, let me say to those of you who are joining us on television, we're honored to have you. I hope this uh, teaching will stir you up. You can get the same study guide we have. Let me put the website on the screen for you. Go to this website, www.pmchurch.tv. You're looking for our series, The Sabbath. This is the next to the last piece in The Sabbath. It all concludes next weekend. You're looking for The Sabbath. Title of this teaching, The Case of Dr. Eck. And when it's, when, it, when it's a study guide beside the case of Dr. Eck, you click there, you will have the identical study guide. And by the way, those of you who are getting it off the web, the answers in very small print are on the bottom. So don't feel bad. If you miss something along the way, you'll be able to uh, double check yourself at the end of that study guide. All right, let's write it down. Line number one, study guide. All the way to the balcony. You've got them up there. Be patient. The ushers are coming to you, but we need to go. Line number one, the heart of the Leipzig debate, July 1519. Between Johannes Eck and Martin Luther was over sola scriptura, only holy scripture. That's the great Protestant uh, principle and premise. Only holy scripture. Now, Eck has a position. Jot it down. Eck championed the, the authority and primacy of the church through councils and popes. These are his words. We heard them a moment ago. I venerate the Roman pontiff as Christ's vicar. All right. That's exposition. And here comes Luke's uh, Luther's rather Luther defended the authority and primacy of the scriptures through study and prayer for the sake of scripture. Luther cried out, we should reject pope and councils. One more line. Thus, the die was cast and the gauntlet thrown down. Sola scriptura versus church tradition. That's the key. That's this big debate. Scriptures only or scriptures plus church tradition. That's that's the uh, that's the nub. Which one carries the greater authority? Who won that debate? It all depends on who you were rooting for. But it was in the ongoing written debate. Now, listen to this, guys. In the ongoing written debate beyond Leipzig, that Dr. X scored perhaps his most his most telling logical thrust at Luther. As far as I know, we do not have a response from Luther on this one. And I'm not surprised there is no adequate logical response to X thrust. Now, Eck uh, actually included this in a, in a book he published. It's entitled Encridian, Encridian, and you have it right there in your study guide. Stunning rebuttal to sola scriptura. Fill it in. This is Eck writing now. If, however, the church, the Roman church, has had power to change the Sabbath of the Bible into Sunday... And to command Sunday keeping, why should it not have this power concerning other holy days? Because the reformers are saying, hey, wait a minute, no more, no more holy feasts. We don't have those anymore. And they're saying, hey, wait a minute, come on, guys, please. 
We changed the Sabbath to Sunday. Why shouldn't we be able to have the power for holy days? Now, notice the logic. If you omit the latter, you don't want the liturgical holy days, and you turn from the church to the scriptures alone, sola scriptura, then you must keep the Sabbath with the Jews, which has been kept from the beginning of the world, end quote. Cha-ching! Huh? Did you get that one? Mercy. In other words, you Protestants cannot have your cake and eat it too. Can't do it. You say you believe, Dr. X challenges, you say you believe in sola scriptura, the Holy Scriptures only. But if you really believe that, you would be worshiping on the seventh day Sabbath. Why? Because everybody knows that that is the only day postulated in Holy Scripture. So I repeat, Dr. X just drives that thrust home. I repeat, if sola scriptura, jot this down, will you? If sola scriptura is your reformation cry, you must return to the Bible Sabbath or, and his logic is searing here, or you must reject sola scriptura and accept Rome's claim to determine divine truth evidenced by her power to change the Sabbath to Sunday. You got two choices, boys. Which will it be? Because even in the time of Luther and Eck, everybody knew that Rome claimed to have changed the day of worship from Sabbath to Sunday. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, it was brilliant. It was a double bind, double thrust piece of logic for which neither Luther nor any Protestant today has offered an adequate response. In other words, Eck was right. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You must either accept the Seventh-day Sabbath of the Bible, or you must accept the authority of the Church of Rome, which claims to have changed the day of worship to the day of the sun, the venerated day of the sun. There is no other authoritative stance or reason for keeping Sunday, save the authority of Rome. That is X logic in the case of Dr. Eck. And by the way, if Eck, is, if, if Eck is right, then you might as well throw the Protestant principle of sola scriptura out the window. It will not hold water. There's one other bit of fascinating history that I never knew before. A few weeks ago, it's the first time I ever heard of this one. You remember that in response to the Protestant Reformation, the Church of Rome convened a major church council. Now, this isn't the surprise. Everybody knows about the, the Council of Trent. It was, convened in, uh, it was convened in March of 1545 and proceeded with interruptions until 1564, almost 20 years. Now, here's the part. It was a surprise to me, and this may be a surprise to you as well. It turns out that in the debate of the Council of Trent, and they are wondering, how should we meet the challenge of the Protestant Reformation? It turns out that in that debate, there was a large group of influential churchmen at the council who began to advocate that the Church of Rome ought to abandon this idea of tradition plus scripture and, in fact, embrace the, the Reformation's premise, sola scriptura. They are championing it within the Church of Rome to the place that finally the papal legates write back to the Vatican and they say, we are gridlocked and it looks like they're going to carry the day. Sixteen sessions of the Council of Trent have ended. And it is clear now that they are still at loggerheads 
on this question. When on the beginning of the 17th session, held on January 18, 1552, the Archbishop of Reggio, Gaspar del Fosso, stood up and made a speech that ended up carrying the day. And here's his speech. In fact, you have a portion of his speech in your study guide. I want you to, I want you to hang on to this little speech. You hang on to it. The Archbishop of Reggio stood before the assembled council and he made this statement. Such, you see it there in the study guide, such is the condition of the heretics. He's talking about the uh, Protestant reformers. Such is the condition of the heretics today that they appeal to no other matter more than that they, under the pretense of the word of God, overthrow the Roman church. What he's saying is, hey, listen, you know what they're doing? They're saying it's the Bible and the Bible alone. That's how they throw out this whole church thing. But I want to tell you, he goes on. Now, look, notice. Yet the authority of the church is most gloriously set forth by the scriptures. For, on the, for while on the one hand, the church, she recommends them, the scriptures. Now, watch this. On the other hand, the legal precepts of the Lord contained in them, that would be the law. Those precepts have ceased by virtue of the same authority. We declare that it no longer holds the legal precepts of God. Now, gentlemen, and he's making his point. Let me give you a case in point. The Sabbath. Jot that in, please. The Sabbath. Now, here's his illustration. The Sabbath, the most glorious day in the law, has been changed to the Lord's day by virtue of the authority of the church. Should this authority cease, which would surely please the heretics, who would then witness for truth and confound the obstinacy of the heretics? Now, do you get what he's saying? Let me run it by you one more time. You have it there. It'll take a while. It's, it's old English. You, you'll, you'll have to kind of uh, brood over it later. Let, let me run it by you one more time. I.E. Here, here is what Del Foso is saying. I.E. If we, as the church, choose sola scriptura, we will lose our authority as the ruling church. Therefore, we must reject sola scriptura in favor of tradition that grants us our authority. Authority proven, by the way, by the fact that we change the Sabbath to Sunday. We can't go down that road, gentlemen. And the speech carried the day. And he did it brilliantly, just as Dr. Eck had done earlier, by appealing to Rome's change of the Sabbath to Sunday as the reason why the tradition of the church councils and popes could be and should be elevated above Holy Scripture. Ladies and gentlemen, some of you are into law. We have some lawyers here. It's called circular reasoning. And it goes like this. The proof that we have the power and authority to change the Scripture is that we change the Scripture. You can argue that forever. It's circular reasoning. But it carried the day. Jot it down. At the Council of Trent, Sola Scriptura was finally and officially superseded by church tradition. Because there's no other authoritative reason for keeping Sunday except for the authority of the Roman church. There, you, you can't go anywhere. You say, well, what about, uh, what about the New Testament? Let me tell you something. Jot this down. There are eight references in the New Testament to the first day of the week. Only eight of them. Six of those references, jot it down, please. Six of those references have to do with the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on the first day of the week. No contest there. Everybody knew that. One of them, Acts 20, verse 7, has to do, and jot this down, please. It, it actually is describing a Saturday night meeting, because Saturday night is a dark part of the first day, which would be Sunday. A Saturday night gathering of Christians with Paul and Troas. In fact, the New English Bible comes along and translates Acts 27, 20, verse 7, as Saturday night. No, no contest there. That leaves only one. The final of the eight 
Because when Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1, he writes to the Christians in Corinth and he says, Hey, listen, guys, I want you to take financial stock every first day of the, of the new week in order to set money aside at home. Put it by you at home. It doesn't say go to church. It says put it by you at home for famine relief aid for Christians in Jerusalem. Keep your pen moving. Not one of these eight even remotely suggests God changed his mind and his seventh-day Sabbath. It's just not there. Let it be repeated. The only remaining reason for keeping Sunday instead of Sabbath is to accept the authority claimed by the Roman church. That was the case of Dr. Eck, and the rest is history. A history that Jesus surely was not unmindful of when he uttered the sternest renunciation and condemnation of tradition anywhere in the sacred literature. Now we open the Bible. I want you to take a look at the Gospel of St. Mark. Take a look at this. It is almost as if Jesus spoke these words after the Council of Trent's decision. The Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 7. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It'll be page 678 in that Pew Bible, Mark chapter 7. I'm going to read the uh, first three verses here. Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together. These are the religious elite, all right? These are the, uh, these are the professionals. Some of the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. He was up in Galilee. Now, verse 2, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they went apoplectic. They found fault. Verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. Now, I put a quotation in your study guide from the Bible commentary. Take a look at this. So don't take my word for it. Here's a reputable commentary. Let me just read that quotation with you. The washing here referred to was strictly ritualistic. Write it down. Not sanitary. This is not the kind of washing when you, when you were a kid and you came in at supper time. Your mom said, show me your hands. Did you wash your hands? Oh, I washed my hands. Show me your hands. Let me see. Because you didn't wash. Did you, did you use soap? No. Did you use water? No. What did you do? Wipe it on a towel? Yep. Go back. Come on. You remember your mom doing that? Let me, see, let me see those hands again, boy. This is not sanitary washing. The washing here referred to was strictly ritualistic, not sanitary. Now watch this. This rite is said to have consisted of pouring a small amount of, small quantity of water upon the fingers and palm of first one hand and then the other hand tilted so that the water ran from the palm to the wrist, but no further. So you get just this little bit of water and you get it moving in your hand. So it's kind of cleansing and you roll it up to your wrist. You can't let it go down your arm. You have to stop it. And you cannot, as the quotation goes on to say, you cannot let it go back into the palm because that ruins the whole ritual. So you have to get that water, just balance it up on your wrist and then quickly turn your palms over and wipe your hands. And then you have ritually washed. How much water should we use? Well, that's a great question. Read on here. The minimum amount of water prescribed was that which would be contained in one and a half eggshells. That's how much water to use. It seems, however, I thought this was, listen to this. It seems, however, that where water was not available, a dry ablution was permitted in which a person would simply go through the motions of washing his hands in the prescribed manner. 
There's no water here. Well, what are you doing? I don't know. I'm just doing this. There's no water. Well, you think I watch? Yes, I am. I'm doing this. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? You know what's going on? This little ritual has been created so that those who imbibe in it are declaring to all those who are watching, washing, I, I have found a measure of holiness in my life. No water at all. No, I'm just pretending. But, but, I have the motions. Is there a place in Holy Scripture where God prescribes washing like that? Absolutely not. What's happened? It's the oral tradition of the elders. A massive body of oral rabbinical regulations that have grown up around the Torah. In some cases, the oral tradition came to be regarded as more sacred than the law itself. And Christ is with fury attacking the traditions of that religious community. And so the Pharisees come to him and look, drop down to verse 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And here it comes. Jesus answered the sternest words he's spoken about tradition in all of Scripture. He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Almost as if he were speaking the words after the Council of Trent. Verse 8, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many, many other such things that you do. He said, verse 9, he said to them all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Jot it down, ladies and gentlemen, shades of the case of Dr. Eck. Write it down. You reject the commandment. I inserted the word fourth. You reject the fourth commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Thus, Jesus says, keep writing, in vain you worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You know what? It is almost as if Jesus were addressing Dr. Eck, the archbishop, the tradition of Rome and Protestants today. You have made the word of God of no effect through your tradition a direct quote from verse 13. You've made it of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Sola Scriptura, or church tradition. How do we choose? How shall we respond? The fact of the matter is, for every, for every Roman Catholic faithful today, for every faithful Protestant, you know what? For all of us as Christians, for all of us as Christians, when it comes to the day of worship, there are only two possible responses. Response number one, embrace the seventh-day Sabbath of Holy Scripture, the gift of the Creator to the human race. That's response number one. Response number two, we can accept Rome's veneration of Sunday and acknowledge her to be the ultimate arbiter of divine truth. There is no third choice. There, there just is no other Option. Which is why I should, should not have been stunned when I learned this last May of the, of the resignation of Dr. Frank Beckwith, former president of the Evangelical Theological Society, one of the most prestigious theological societies in the world. After his resignation, the executive committee of the 
Evangelical Theological Society released this statement to the press. And I have a copy of it right here. It was released on May 8 of this last year. All right. I'm reading now on May 5 last year. Dr. Frank Beckwith resigned as president of the Evangelical Theological Society. This resignation has come as a result of his decision to be received into full communion in the Roman Catholic Church, which he did on April 29. Dr. Beckwith has informed the executive committee that this was a decision he came to after, quote, much prayer, counsel, and consideration. The members of the executive committee wish Dr. Beckwith well in his ongoing professional work. We've come to appreciate him as a scholar and as a friend, and so we thank Dr. Beckwith for his service to the society. The work of the Evangelical Theological Society as a scholarly forum proceeds on the basis that the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is the Word of God written. Whereas the Roman Catholic Church posits a larger canon of Scripture than that recognized by Evangelical Protestants, including in its canon several writings from the Apocrypha, it also extends the quality of infallibility to certain expressions of church dogma issued by the magisterium, the teaching office of the Roman Catholic Church, as well as certain pronouncements of the Pope, which are delivered ex cathedra, such as doctrines about the immaculate conception and bodily assumption of Mary, end quote. Ladies and gentlemen, the case of Dr. Eck and the decision of Dr. Beckwith are entirely logical and laudable if sola scriptura is not the defining premise. If, however, you embrace sola scriptura, then you must choose to live your life in obedience to Jesus Christ and His holy scriptures, and the day of worship will be defined by the example of Christ Himself. You say, hey, listen, do I come on, please, please. Please, well, I mean, what's the big deal? What does it matter? I mean, you know, some, for some it's this way, for some it's that way, as long as, as, long as our hearts are, are faithful to God. I want to share with you the final piece next Sabbath. Next weekend, the final piece. I want to share with you a dramatic, a dramatic segment out of apocalyptic prophecy. The teaching next week, our last teaching, I hope you're here for that one. The teaching next week, a test, very simple and highly visible. Because if apocalyptic prophecy is true, it will come down to a final exam. Very simple, highly visible. And the answer to the question, what does it matter, becomes crystal clear. I've stood on that hallowed piece of earth where in the grass is embedded a plaque announcing that here on April 18, 1521, Martin Luther stood and defended his faith before the imperial council of the Diet of Worms. Scholars are not sure how Luther's speech ended. Nobody wrote it down. This is amazing because his entire uh, remarks were transcribed. But some scholars are suggesting that the, the audience was so moved by Luther's final words that just, it was just silence. And nobody scribbled it down. Some months later, the final words were rendered in writing. And they are these. Here I stand 
I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. That's true. Martin Luther did not live long enough to recover all the Bible truth that had become buried by church tradition during the long, dark, and Middle Ages. That's absolutely true. Martin Luther, in his one short lifetime, spent his energies focusing the church and the world on Jesus as Lord of salvation. No time for any exploration about Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath. But the fact is, ladies and gentlemen, today the bright light of divine truth is surely raising up another generation of young reformers. It seems today that the light is bright enough and the time is right enough for a generation of men, women, and young adults to stand up in the same way and in standing declare that they will embrace the Creator's salvation and the Creator's Sabbath with a courage born of conviction that this is the only stand I can logically and biblically take. Here I too stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. Hmm. What do you think about that? That's a rather gutsy stance, isn't it? But you know what? I believe God is raising up a generation of young reformers. I want to make an invitation. If you're 30 or younger, if you're 30 or younger right now, and you'd be willing, even if you stood all alone, to take that same stand, so help me God, I will stand on sola scriptura. I will stand on this book till the heavens fall. If you're 30 or younger and you're willing to take that stand, I wish you'd stand right now. 30 or younger. 30 or younger. I'm willing to stand. So help me God if I stand alone. Here I stand. Hallelujah. How about this? If you're 30 or older, <laughs> that pretty much would bring the rest of us in. If you're 30 or older, and my heart, you know, I've been studying this, and I've been going over this, and I'm saying, oh, Jesus, please. I don't know. I can't read the future. All I'm telling you, Jesus, is in the present, I want to have the guts. I want to have the courage to stand. Even if I have to stand alone, I want to stand for the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Scriptures only. If you're 30 or older and you want to make that same stance, you stand to your feet as well, please. God bless you. Yeah, why not? Why not? Why not? Holy Father, Holy Father, we stand. It's not a huge deal. We do it in comfort, we do it in security. It's not one man against a council. It's not one woman against a community. It's we're together. But still we stand. Oh, Jesus, please. The fires ignited five centuries ago in the recovery of truth buried 
through the dark ages. Keep those fires burning brightly and in the men and women, in the young adults who have stood today. Raise up new reformers for this third millennium. Do whatever it takes in her life. Do whatever it takes in his life. Stand beside him as he stands for you, as she stands up for Jesus. Seal this moment. Someday, may we remember that we made this decision on this day for the glory and honor of our Savior. Here we stand, so help us God. Amen.